can handle. But uh, they were all good. Maybe some, because of the ingredients, appeal to our palate more than others might have, depending on who we are and what we like. But, uh, wow, that was good. Appreciate it. Thank you. My waist doesn't thank you, but the rest of me does. <coughs> well, I have to confess I was wrong about something. It seems like I have to do that way too often. But uh, I had stated that I thought we were doing Deuteronomy a year late, and quite a few raised a question about that. I somehow got my wires crossed there, thinking it was supposed to be at the beginning of the seventh year, not at the end of it. But this is the end of it indeed, and that's what the Scripture said. I read it, you know, right out of Deuteronomy 31, and still in my mind didn't get it straight. So... Thankfully, even if I don't know what I'm doing, God does. That's, that's better anyway. So let's get back to it today in Deuteronomy 2. Uh, I want to cover what, it, what all I can if I don't expound too much. And uh, yet, on the other hand, if you just read, then that can get boring. So there's a balance in here. Chapter 2 of Deuteronomy. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Eternal spoke to me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Eternal spoke to me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you northward, and command you the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take you heed, or good heed, to yourselves therefore." Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau for a possession. Now, we have to understand there was a relationship problem between Israel, uh, as expressed through Jacob, and through Esau, his brother. A long-term hatred that had not gone away and did not go away even with Esau's death, nor has it gone away yet today. We still have the Ashkenazi Jews, who are the descendants, apparently, of Esau, the Edomites. And even in the end-time prayer projection and the blessing of the nations, God tells us that the Edomite will rise up above us here in the end and have victory over Jacob. And they will gloat over us, and then God will punish them. So God understood the relationship there and understood how the Edomite at that point could fear Jacob. And even in this end time, uh, there has been a certain amount of fear instilled through various uh, policies that we have had. And yet they still hate us as adamantly as Esau himself did clear back then. And they're doing their very best as central bankers and people in the fat of the land, as God said it would be, uh, work toward destroying the American economic system and America itself. So, be warned, that is what is coming. They say, well, you don't talk about conspiracies. Well, this is a conspiracy that goes all the way back. It's one that has never died out. And it's one that is going to triumph over us here at the end and very shortly, if you look at economic conditions and the economic system today. 
The great crash of Zephaniah is well on its way. The wall is leaning out and it will crash soon, as Isaiah points out. So he said, don't meddle with them, for I will not give you their land. You shall buy meat of them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. So he says, don't mess with their society. Don't do anything to them. Uh, if you need to buy from them, you can. And I think that's kind of the way we are today as pilgrims and ambassadors for God's kingdom here on this earth. We're not to meddle with the peoples around us. Uh, that's established way back here. And then Paul follows it up in the New Testament by saying that we're not to be friends with the world, not to make our fellowship and our friends with them. Uh, that, that has been the history of Israel, that making friends in the world will draw you away from God, worshiping God, and from God's people. So this is a story thread throughout the Bible. And Israel got in their biggest trouble when they began to interact with the people around them. Uh, verse 7, For the Eternal your God has blessed you in all the works of your hand. He knows you're walking through this great wilderness these forty years. The Eternal your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So I said, you've been out here on your own for a long time, and now you're going to go through an area, I'm going to lead you through, where the Edomites are. And remember that I've always taken care of you, that I've given you everything you really needed, and I have in mind to give you much, much more if you will but obey. Even as we have been given a great deal of understanding and knowledge of what is going on and where we are and who we are, and God has promised us great blessings just ahead if we will remember Him and what He has done and what He has promised to do. We have to be patient and wait for His time. I'm sure they got impatient in that 40 years. That's one reason they murmured and complained so much. But God said it's going to be 40 years. And all of the impatience you want to have is on you. God has set times, and He knows what He is doing. It is we that have the problem. Verse 8, And when we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain from Eglath and from Ezion-Geber, uh, we turned and passed by the wilderness of Moab. And the Eternal said to me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them uh, in battle, for I will not give you of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the children of Lot for a possession. They took the area primarily east of where Abraham was, uh, and the river Arnon probably is back over here to the east some. I don't know exactly which one it is. The Imams dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Imams. <clears throat> the Horems also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did to the land of his possession, which the Eternal gave to them. Now rise up, said I, 
and get you over the brook Zered, and we went over the brook Zered. So he's, he's just rehearsing the story of where they had been, how they'd gotten where they were. I think it does us good once in a while to go back and rehearse where we came from, how we got here, how we came to have the understanding we have, because if you know where you've been and you know how you got where you are, it gives you a little better picture of where you need to go next, uh, rather than forgetting. And that was one of the, <clears throat> the big problems with Israel, was forgetting. So he's rehearsing, summarizing. Verse 14, In the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was thirty-eight years until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host. For indeed the hand of the Eternal was against them, to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. Part of the thing here was that God wanted them to learn to depend upon Him. Not on their swords, not on their spears, but on God. And those who leaned on the sword for protection, or any source but God, were a target for him to remove so that the rest might learn dependence on God. John 18:36. If my kingdom this were of this world, then would my servants fight, but my kingdom is not of this world, and therefore my servants don't fight. So God has made it clear he does not want us to fight in wars or take up the sword. There are many people in our nation today who are worried about whether they should take up arms against even our own government and our own military and DHS and so on and so forth. Not us. God has already explained to us what to do. He said, don't fight. But he will take care of us. And when the Assyrian comes into our land, he will send a contingent of men out after them without swords, without guns, seven or eight men against a hundred thousand, pick a number, army wouldn't do much anyway. So it's going to be God's deliverance. Now, all these things that have been preparatory up to this time, <clears throat> we are going to witness and live through. We don't need guns, automatic weapons, bombs, and all those things to try to protect ourselves from whomever comes after us. God will take care of us. So faith, faith, patience, and wait upon God, and we don't need to take up arms. <clears throat> now, they may think they can come and overrun us. Because we're small, and because I just said we won't take up arms, and these things are monitored, I think you need to understand that everything we have on our website, everything I've ever spoken, the powers that be know about. This thing isn't done in a closet. And the things you paste on Facebook and various things about yourself and others, they know about it's becoming clearer and clearer that they, that they monitor every conversation, every posting, wherever it is posted. I don't know that they read every one of them, but there are certain buzzwords that when they hear, 
they save it or set it in a special category uh, for future reference in case you become a problem. That is getting pretty well known now. So we need to be very, very careful about A, not only what we put on there about ourselves, but what we post about others as well. That could be very, very important. Uh, not only does it put you in jeopardy or danger if you put things in there that are sensitive to those that are monitoring it, but it could jeopardize the peace and safety of others as well. So we as Americans are pretty naive uh, in many respects in thinking we can post all kinds of personal stuff or somebody else's personal stuff wherever and think that, the, that it's safe, it's okay, there's no problem. We need to be very careful. <clears throat> anyway. All the men of war were consumed and dead. That's how I got started on that. Uh, we're not here to fight. We're here to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, and he will fight our battles for us. That is a lesson that Israel had trouble learning. And there were times when God would say, all right, go ahead and fight. All right, go ahead and have your king. All right, go ahead and do this if that's what you want to do. But it wasn't his will and his purpose. There were even certain laws that were established by Moses such as divorce and remarriage and polygamy and various things that were not within God's best will, that were not in his original purpose. But he allowed them, and Christ explained why. Because of the hardness of your hearts. He allowed this. But it was not his original intent. So we need to do the best we can to understand the Scripture and God's original intent and get back to that as closely as we can do. His original intent was that he would fight all the battles for all his people. So somebody can say, well, yeah, he told him to go fight back in that verse. Yeah, he did. Can't argue that. But Why? because of the hardness of their hearts and the way they wanted to go. And he said, okay, fine. Just like with a king. You can have a king. That's what you want. Go for it. But he will tax the living daylights out of you. It will not turn out good for you. But they had kings. And it didn't turn out good for them. So let's find God's original intent in everything as best we can. Because it's going to be the best for us in the long run. Verse 17, the, dead, the men of war were killed, but the Eternal spoke to me, saying, You are to pass over through Ar, the coast of Moab, this day. And when you come near ever against the children of Moab, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give you of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it to the children of Lot for a possession." He had something special in mind for them. So he didn't want them coveting and lusting after the land of their enemies or their cousins or whatever. Uh, wait until God gives you what he wants you to have. Verse 20, that also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt there in an old time, and the Ammonites called them Zamzumims 
Why include all this? Well, here at the end, we're finding that there were giants all over what we call America today. And there are no giants in the Middle East. There are no remains, no bones. Uh, they found no evidence, no trace that Zion's, giants were ever there. But they've been found all over America. Does that tell us something? You know, a little here, a little there, a little somewhere else, and we begin to put the picture together. Anyway, a people great and many and tall is the Anakims, but the Eternal destroyed them before them, and they've succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. He's also saying it doesn't matter how big people are, how powerful they are, how important they think they are, God can take care of the problem. That's one of the reasons that he said only Caleb and Joshua will go in is because they were the only ones that believed him when he said, this is the land of promise, you can go in there and I'll fight your battles for you. You don't have to worry how big they are. It goes clear back to the story of of, uh, well, to come later, but the story of David and Goliath. They still hadn't learned the lesson. Well, there's this big Philistine out there. The whole army's afraid of him. God can't destroy a giant. David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine coming to stand before the armies of Almighty God? Give me a couple stones and slingshot. God will take care of this, and he did. Had one believer, one. And God used the one to take care of the problem. We are few, are we not? But God says if we will do certain things, we will be the healers of the breach, the restorer of paths to walk in. He always works through a very few. Can we be them or be among them? Yes. It's up to us. It's up to us. How much we believe. Going on in verse 22, the same thing as he did to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horims from before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead even to this day. And the Avims, which dwelt in Hazarim, even unto Azad, the Kaptorims, which came forth out of Kaptor, destroying them and dwelt in their stead. Well, he says, there's this history of people fighting people. i got something going for you. Just hang in there. Don't mess with them. Don't desire what they have. God is against covetousness. All it does is frustrate you. When you covet something you can't have, it just frustrates you. It doesn't frustrate the other person or persons, but it makes you discontent because you're not content with what you have. You want something that is illegal. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes we can't desire something that is legal uh, and be frustrated because it is not apparently there yet. Even as we, as a small group, commanded to be apart from the world, don't date out in the world, even though we might be eligible for marriage, we're not eligible to marry in the world because that is becoming unequally yoked. So we can desire something that is legal in terms of being married, perhaps, but God has certain conditions on who and where, and if we live according to those, it's all going to turn out right in the long run. 
God knows our state. He knows our situation. It will only remain static for so long, and there will be a movement forward. Trust Him. Wait for Him. Believe in Him. These are emergency circumstances. They aren't normal circumstances. And the world around us that appears normal today will not be looking that way at all very shortly. The seeds have been planted and the crop is nearly ripe. I read an article this very morning about the problems within America. You know, everybody blames all our problems on the politicians. We just get the right politicians in there, or a new party, or something, then everything would be okay. Get rid of the Federal Reserve and go back to real money and everything will be fine. Now, that's overlooking why God is going to punish this nation. It's because of our moral rot and decay from within. The people have the government they deserve. We break God's laws. We are not a godly nation, and therefore we're ruled over by ungodly men, even as we are ungodly. So God is going to take this nation down for our own sins, not just because we had bad leaders. That's what people out in the world miss for the most part. Anyway, verse 24, Rise you up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. So God tells them, I'll tell you what you can have, and I'll tell you when you can fight. This day will I begin to put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Has that not even happened here in the end time? Where nations have feared America. Remember God brought us back to this land after having banished us from it for many, many years because of sin and taken us in captivity into uh, North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe because of our sins. He didn't let us come back until, permanently at least, until 1607. And in this short period of time, we have become a source of fear and trepidation for the whole world. They have feared before us. But because of our sin and decay, they are getting to the point they don't fear us as much. And they see us being destroyed economically. They're going to lose that fear soon. And they're going to take us into captivity. But we had that chance. Had we chosen righteousness. But as a people, we did not. So that dread is being removed. So even as God worked these things back then, he's worked the same things today. Wouldn't it have been great had America served God in these last 300 years, 400 years, and been his people, and the whole world would have looked at us with awe, with great admiration, 
because of the blessings God would pour out. But instead, they've seen us rot and decay, and they've seen the blessings being removed, and they see us now a doddering old empire about to fall on its face. Sad. It's just sad. So what are we going to do about it? It's got to start somewhere. Your life and mine. We have to pick it up. We have to turn to God. We have to obey Him and serve Him and not be like the people around us, and then he will put the fear of God among the nations because of us. A very small people, 10% of the church, the whole world is going to stand in awe and fear of. Won't believe us, but they'll stand in awe and fear. God is going to start this whole thing over again and have an opportunity. This time, though, Christ is going to come to the earth. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to be sure that people do comply. They will bow their knee or it will be broken. And Israel will begin again to have nations stand in awe of her. But this time, with Christ and the Father's direct intervention and leadership and governance, we'll finally have totally righteous leadership a righteous king with a righteous bride to rule the earth. That's what we're here today to depict. Even as we read about what God promised and how they failed and how God keeps working at it over and over again until it finally works. And this time, it's going to work. After this final destruction of Israel, then we will bow before God and He will begin to work through His people. That's why He's called some now and He's sifting and sorting among them to find those who will rule the earth righteously, who will govern their own lives righteously as proof that they will ultimately rule righteously in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedemoth and Sihon king of Heshbon with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn into the right hand nor to the left. You shall sell me meat for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Uh, only I will pass through on my feet. I won't get on horses and attack you. I'll just pass through on the road. As the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwelt in Ar, did unto me, until I shall pass over Jordan into the land which the eternal our God gives us. So he said, I'm listening to God, Moses did, and we're not going to mess with you like God has told us not to. Just let us go through to the land that God said he is going to give us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the eternal your God hardened his heart and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as appears this day. And the Eternal said to me, Behold, I have given, begun to give Sihon and his land before you. Begin to possess that you may inherit his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jabez. And the Eternal our God delivered him before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people reiterating history here. And we took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. 
Only the cattle we took for a prey to ourselves, and the spoil of the cities which we took. Interesting, isn't it? That God had told them, don't mess with the people as you go through. But someone who got in the way of what God wanted done, who got in the way of Israel, whom he was leading to the promised land, got wiped out, man, woman, and child. Do not go against God's edicts, his wishes, his desires. It can become fatal. And ultimately, in the lake of fire, uh, is when that all comes to a head. <coughs> uh, so they did take the cattle for themselves. Verse 36, From Aroer, which is by the brink of the river Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even to Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Eternal, our God, delivered all unto us. Only to the land of the children of Ammon you came not, nor unto any place of the river Jabbok, nor unto the cities and the mountains, nor unto whatsoever the Eternal, our God, forbade us. So they didn't fight, they didn't meddle with, and then when somebody meddled with them, or tried to stop them, God took care of the problem. We have a job to do here at the end, to build a temple of the Eternal, our God, spiritual and, I think, physical as well. And God said he will protect us, didn't he? That he'll take care of us. He'll be a wall of fire and a covert from the heat and a defense from everything that might come against us. So we can move forward, as he tells us, without fear and with good courage and be strong and work. Those are what the instructions he gives us. Same old stuff, isn't it? Do what I say. Move forward. I'll take care of you. You sure? I said I would. Do you believe me or not? He's telling us from history that he has a history of taking care of the obedient and a history of destroying the disobedient. He tells us he is going to bless the obedient here at the end. So all that history is written in the light of prophecy of what is about to come. So there's some vital lessons for us right here. Chapter 3. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. And the Eternal said to me, Fear him not. There's a recurring thing. Don't fear. For I will deliver him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. How many times does it take for us to learn? So the Eternal, our God, delivered us, delivered into our hands Og also, and the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we smote him until none was left to him remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we took not from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, beside unwalled towns a great many. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of the Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. 
but all the cattle and the spoil of the cities we took for a prey to ourselves. Now he's rehearsing that they were walled cities, they were well defended, that God had to deliver them, and there began to be a fear of Israel among the peoples around and where they were going and where they were headed. By the time they got to the Jordan River, the people that were in the land promised to Israel were fearful. And when we we crossed the river and surrounded Jericho and marched around it seven times and the walls fell down, word got out. They feared Israel. They didn't really maybe realize it, but what they really feared was the God of Israel who was able to do these things. I mean, we could walk around, pick a city, we could walk around it seven times and blow trumpets and nothing would happen. Well, we might get arrested. It's only if God is in it. We need to be sure God is in it. (coughs) And we took at that time, verse 8, out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, the land that was on this side, Jordan, from the river of Arnon unto Mount Hermon. If I have correctly identified Mount Hermon, it's just above where Jerusalem and Zion are, and therefore this river would be back to the east. (coughs) Which Hermon the Sidonians called Syrian, and the Amorites called it Shinir, or Shinir. All the cities of the plain, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, Tesalka, and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remains of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? It was saved. Nine cubits was the length, and four cubits the breadth of it. Now there was something bigger than a California king. After the cubit of a man, it was six feet wide and thirteen and a half feet long. He was a big man. But he was conquered. And this land, which we possessed at that time from Erawar, which is by the river Arna, half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof get out of the Reubenites and the Gadites. Uh, Thirteen and a half feet, a tall man, but they have found skeletons in this country already 17 feet high. And they found a lot of them eight and nine feet high. So this was not, in that sense, unusual. (coughs) Anyway, verse 13, And the rest of Gilead and of Albashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh all the region of Argob with all... Uh, Bashan, which was called the land of giants. So that area east of Zion, east of Cedar Mountain and, and the Wasatch Range, is where these peoples were. <clears throat> because uh, three tribes did not all cross the Jordan, they decided to stay on the east side. So that had been back this way and somewhat north, as I calculate. Then he talks about what he gave to different ones. Uh, verse 17, moving down. The plain also in Jordan and the coast thereof, from Chinnereth even to the Sea of the Plain, even the Salt Sea, under Ash, uh, the Pisgah eastward. Uh, we have the Salt Lake up north, 
which used to cover clear out to Nevada and down south a great deal where the salt flats are. But here near where I think the site of Jerusalem is, we also have the Little Salton Sea, or Little Salt Sea. Uh, Little Salt Lake instead of the Big Salt Lake. So the things that are mentioned here in the Bible can be found here, not just in the Middle East. In fact, they can be found more here than there. And I commanded you, verse 18, at that time saying, The Eternal your God has given you this land to possess it, You shall pass over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, all their meat for the war. So they had chosen war in the past. God fought their battles for them at times. But here again he's saying, I'm going to have you do some warring. But your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know that you have much cattle, shall abide in your cities which I have given you. He even tells us at the end that uh, Jerusalem will be built and inhabited as towns without walls with men and much cattle there in Zechariah 2 in the end-time prophecy about the end-time church and the two witnesses. So, history is being repeated. Verse 20, You'll abide in your cities which I've given until the eternal have given rest to your brethren as well as to you, and until they also possess the land which he termed your God has given them beyond Jordan. And then shall you return every man to his possession which I have given you. (coughs) And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the eternal your God has done to these two kings. So shall the eternal do to all the kingdoms where you pass. God says, History is a story of the future. Uh, What you've seen before is going to be repeated before you. You shall not fear them, for the eternal your God, he shall fight for you. Same thing he tells us in Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. And I besought the eternal at that time, saying, O eternal God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to your works and according to your might? So Moses says, I went to God and prayed, and I told him that he was beyond comparison. I pray you, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. But the Eternal was angry with me for your sakes, and would not hear me. And the Eternal said to me, Let it suffice you, speak no more to me of this matter. So Moses, righteous as he was, as much a servant of God as he was, and God even called him his friend, was not allowed to go because of his transaction or transgression and that of the people even though he sincerely, deeply desired, God said no. Now, that does not mean that he will never go into the promised land. Moses is listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful. And when Christ descends with a shout, Moses will rise to meet him, and he will go into the promised land. That was a temporary physical uh, rejection, but it is not an eternal rejection. 
Sometimes the mistakes we make, we pay for physically on this earth. Even though God might forgive our transgressions, though he might remove the death penalty or whatever, we still sometimes suffer the result, do we not? So even though God forgave Moses, and he will forgive Israel, he still suffered for what he had done. There was a penalty that had to be paid. It was an automatic penalty in a way. Just as many of the things we do can cause us grief and misery and heartache, uh, even though God might remove the eternal penalty, we still suffer with the results. <coughs> Now, where was I here? Oh, his prayer. Uh, so he said, don't speak to me any more of this. Uh, I'm tired of listening to that, Moses. It's not going to happen. Pray about something else, more or less. Verse 27, get you up into the mountain of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and behold it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. He says, I'll let you see it from afar. But you can't go. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you shall see. So we abode in the valley over against Beth Peor. There was a mountain high enough that Moses could stand on it and be able to look every direction and see the promised land. Find me a mountain in the Middle East like that. I can show you a couple here within an hour, hour and a half drive like that. Can't find it over there. <clears throat> Just isn't there. Anyway, that aside, I keep going back to that because here and there, little clues, little things, things that are mentioned in Scripture just don't fit over there. But we find that they can fit over here. So this is a matter of piecing together history. It's a matter of piecing together geology, <coughs> geography, and all these things. I just heard from someone who's over at the moment in Jerusalem and going on and on about how wonderful the Mount of Olives is, that there are still a few olive trees there that you can hug. And uh, I thought about sending a note back and saying, uh, do, do me a favor, walk outside the wall of the old city of Jerusalem and step it off over to the Mount of Olives and see how far it is. I already looked on a map, it's only about 300 yards to the top. And yet, the Bible says it's 1.83 miles, or about 15 furlongs, from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. I've said that before, but, you know, there are just so many of these things that when you actually look into them, they stare you in the face, and it doesn't fit over there at all. 1.83 miles would take you way over the Mount of Olives and way on out toward Jericho. Doesn't fit at all. But the Bible says it's 15 furlongs or approximately that, to Bethany, which was at Mount, the Mount of Olives. Anyway, going to chapter 4. <clears throat> now therefore hearken, O Israel, 
to the statutes and to the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the eternal God of your fathers gives you. They had already had the past to show that their murmuring and complaining and unbelief had cost them. Now God says to this new generation about to go over, your fathers died out there. They wouldn't obey me. Now, are you, will you obey me and go in? You shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Eternal, your God, which I command you. No exceptions. No pushing this aside a little or pushing that aside a little because of our desires, our wants, our feelings, our needs. Just do it the way God says. Even if it seems to hurt or you don't like it at the moment, don't diminish. <clears throat> Your eyes have seen what the Eternal did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Eternal your God has destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave to the Eternal your God are alive, every one of you, this day. Now the church of God was taken back to Baal. You have survived because you have determined to obey the eternal, your God. And he has brought you through it with understanding and knowing where you are and who you are and what God has lined out before you. The promises that have been made. Now we face a choice. Will we do as those who follow Baal or those who follow God? Now we've already shown that we're willing to follow God. Let's just follow through. Let's make sure it happens. Let's not give up. Let's endure to the end. Because conditions are going to come, become such that it will be very, very difficult to endure. So we have choices to make just as they did. Verse 5, Behold, I have taught you the statutes and judgments, even as the eternal your God commanded me, that you should do so in the land where you go to possess it. Keep, therefore, and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Can you imagine what America would be like if no one stole anything, embezzled, if no one lied, if no one murdered or raped or pillaged, if no one uh, committed adultery, if no one killed babies, if everybody obeyed God and He healed all the people and you didn't even need the medical profession, much less Obamacare, what a nation it would be. God said, if you will obey me and serve me, follow my statutes, your nation will dwell in peace, protection, prosperity, and good for all. We've tried to express it in America, what we would like to have, haven't we? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, 
peace and goodness for all in the land of the free and the home of the brave, <coughs> which does not exist anymore. But it could have been that way had we served God. It can be for us if we will serve God. And our love one for another, we made the theme for the feast being family. Families don't always get along perfectly, but they love each other enough and are close enough that they can overcome those things and dwell together. We can do it with our blood families. Can't we do it with our spiritual family? With the Spirit of God there? People do it without the Spirit of God with their physical families. Some, some don't, but some do. We have the Spirit of God among us. What more should we be able to do with that? Wouldn't it, won't it be nice when the nations look to a little enclave of God's people at Zion, Jerusalem and then Zion, and say, wow, I wish things could be that way with us. But they can't. It's like child-rearing in a sense. People love to see the result of proper child-rearing. They just don't like the methods that are required to get them there. They'd rather listen to psychologists, psychologists who do not have a clue because it's an easier way and you can be friends and buddies and pals instead of a parent. And it doesn't work. So they like the results of doing it right, but they don't like the method. And if they don't use the method, they don't get the results. And we have a whole nation of people who have children who are out of control, doing their own thing, not paying attention to and honoring their parents. And we have a mess. We'll get to that shortly, the Ten, Ten Commandments. Verse 8, And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? How many millions of laws do we have in America today? There's so many laws they don't even have a chance <clears throat> of trying to police and keep them all. They make laws, but people find ways around it. And then they'll make more laws, and they'll find their way around that. And then more laws, and it just, it's ad nauseum. God has a few. And they're righteous, perfect laws, which will produce good results if they're simply followed. It doesn't have to be rocket science. Well, it's beyond rocket science, really, when you think about it. It's from God. It's stuff that actually works, whereas the laws of men don't work. I mean, God just says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a pretty simple statement, isn't it? But then, even he has certain ones that explain that, a small body of statutes and judgments to explain that if you can't get it. But he doesn't have millions of laws. doesn't need them. If we just follow a few basic principles, we'll have peace and safety and a good society. Verse 9, only take heed to yourself. It never was a problem with God. It was never a problem with the laws. It was a problem with people. Take heed to yourself 
and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them your sons and your sons' sons. Now witness how many people have turned from the ways of God here at this end time as the church has scattered. They didn't keep them before their eyes. They didn't take heed to themselves and their souls diligently. And what they knew just drifted away from them. It's gone now. It's not there anymore. Teach them to your sons and your sons' sons, your grandchildren, that they might know. Because God is saying it's so easy for God's way to depart from us. How easy is it for you and me to ignore God's law today, tomorrow, this minute? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I do that? It's so easy to let it slip for a little while. And then suddenly we wake up and realize, oh, I can't think that. I can't do that. And then we go and apologize. So he's just warning us here. But human nature is such that it's easy to let things slip. It's easy to let our mind go where we want it to go. And it can happen so easily, so quickly, to slide into a wrong mode of thinking. And you don't even know it until you suddenly catch yourself and wake up. Oh, why am I thinking that? This is a very deep warning because it is so easy for us to slide. Verse 10, teach these things, especially that the day that you stood before the eternal your God in Horeb, when the eternal said to me, gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. So he's referring back to Mount Sinai where the law was given. The law is quite simple, quite short, ten principles summarized in two. That's all we really should need. But being human, we need further explanation, it seems, to some degree. You came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Eternal spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, not his likeness. Only you heard a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon a table, on two tables of stone. And the Eternal commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. Take you therefore good heed to yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Eternal spoke to you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire." lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, should be driven to worship them and serve them, which the eternal your God has divided unto all nations unto the whole heaven. Why would you worship those things? And yet people have. 
They've made animals into gods. They've made the sun into a god for certain. Israel has done all the things that God warned them not to do. Even as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, they were down making a graven image of a calf so that they could worship a cow. (laughs) Worship a cow. Can you believe that? That's hard to believe, isn't it? Why would anybody want to worship a cow? Well, there's a whole nation over right now in India that worships cows. It's one of their gods. The Egyptians even worship alligators. Now, there's a god for you. It's wild. But God had to warn about these saints. And we even worship ourselves. Isn't it strange that every one of us can look at ourselves and see faults, weaknesses, lacks, things we ought to do and don't do, and things we don't do we ought to do, and yet we'll worship ourselves anyway. We'll put ourselves ahead of God and His ways, because we want something, we desire something, we like something that is unlawful. And we do it so easily. But that is putting ourselves ahead of God, which is outright idolatry. Comes so easy. So it shouldn't surprise us that people will worship animals and fish and the sun. Verse 19, unless you lift up your eyes to heaven... Oh, I already read that. Let's go to verse 20. But the Eternal has taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt... To be to him a people of inheritance as you are this day. They were just about to walk in and inherit the land that he had promised. Furthermore, the Eternal was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I should not go over Jordan and that I should not go into that good land which Eternal your God gives you for an inheritance. Do you think that vexed Moses at all? He mentions it over and over again. He was truly, absolutely sorry for what he had done. And he chafed under the penalty because he really, really wanted to go there. God had explained it to him. He let him go up on the mountain and look at it and told him, you can't go. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan, but you shall go over and possess that good land. Moses might have had a little jealousy there even. You know, he was a human being and that which he had led them toward for 40 years, he could not imbibe of himself. I'm going to go up on the mountain and die. You go on in. I I, I can see the conflict in his mind just in the way that he writes this over and over. Verse 23, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Eternal your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Eternal your God has forbidden you. For the eternal your God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. And the sun God is worshipped in Israel, in America today, in many, many ways. Verse 25, When you shall beget children and children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Eternal your God to provoke him to anger. 
Here's a man now who had had 40 years experience with Israel. <laughs> he knew what they were going to do before they even did it. He could predict it. So yeah, that's the way it was. That's the way it's going to be. So he keeps warning them. Take heed. Be diligent. Because you'll go back to your humanness. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land, where until you go over Jordan to possess it, you shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. Moses says, I can tell you what you're going to do. I can warn you, but it won't do any good. What did Paul say? The foolishness of preaching. It does very little good. It's necessary. It's needful. It can help. But overall, Paul realized most of what he said, he was just flapping his mouth and it would go into the cyberspace, which they didn't have that word then, but you know what I mean. Moses knew it too. You know what? I know it. I know you dismiss or forget almost immediately what we talk about on Sabbath. Ask you on Monday what the sermon was on Saturday, and most people wouldn't even be able to tell you. And you know what? A lot of times I can't even remember what I said. We read God's Word, and it just goes so easily. God is calling and working with a people who will not be that way. He has high hopes for you and me that we will pay attention and that we will follow through and we will do. And I believe we will. <clears throat> I believe we will. I don't know how many trials, how many troubles, how many defections, how many issues we will face. But he will keep after us because he has to have a people that pay attention. There won't be many, but there will be some. We have every opportunity to be some of those. So let's not let it get past us. So he called heaven and earth to witness against them. God in heaven... And the men around them. Verse 27, And the eternal shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, where the eternal shall lead you. It's happened with America, which is about to go into captivity. It has happened to the church, which has already gone into spiritual captivity ahead of the physical nation. And there you shall serve God as the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. So if we don't pay attention to God, we will wind up in a land of idolatry. But if from there you shall seek the eternal your God, you shall find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. That is repeated throughout the prophecies. It's repeated in the New Testament. It is a continual need. It is not something that automatically happens. Worshiping God with all our heart 
and all our soul takes diligent effort. No one does it easily. No one. When you are in tribulation and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, if you turn to the eternal your God and shall be obedient to his voice. We are now in the latter days. These trials, tribulations, and troubles that Moses foresaw are again being fulfilled. They were fulfilled upon these people that he spoke to in person, who soon after the death of Joshua went back into the ways of the world and went into captivity. It has happened over and over in Israel, and now it is about to happen again in Israel in these latter days. And he has instructed me to read the book of Deuteronomy to us that we might hear and fear and heed. He said to do this every seven years after the year of release. Why would that be? Well, you can start over fresh after the seven-year cycle. And God wants to be sure that we have something that draws our attention, that pulls us front and forward as we enter a new seven-year period to remember these things that Moses told the people. To summarize the history of Israel and know what the problems have been, what they still are, and what we might do about them. So here we are in the latter days, and he says we have to turn to the eternal our God. There's nothing that Jeremiah didn't say, Isaiah, all the prophets. For the eternal your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, neither destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man upon the earth. Don't just go back to Israel, go clear back to the Garden of Eden, he says. And ask from the one side of heaven to the other whether there has been any such thing as this great thing or has been heard like it. The law of God, the way of God, the promises to Israel do not exist and haven't from Genesis down until today, except among those whom he's calling out now to be faithful and true and fulfill his purposes. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? He says, consider some of the things that God has done. Speaking out of the fire, crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan, which they were about to do. Or has God assayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the eternal your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? The plagues... On Mitzrayim, the death and destruction that destroyed that empire, utterly destroyed it. And then Pharaoh and his whole army destroyed in the Red Sea. And we remember those things. 
Unto you it was showed that you might know that the eternal He is God. There is none else beside Him. Now, Ezekiel would not write for a long, long time after Deuteronomy was written. But how many times did he say, And you shall know that I am the Lord. He is going to do things here at the end time that is going to shake the world so that they will know that He is God. And above all, that we will know He is God. Unto you it was showed that you might know that the Eternal He is God and there is none else beside Him. Out of heaven He made you to hear His voice, Mount Sinai, that He might instruct you. And upon earth He showed you His great fire, perhaps volcanic action there. And you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their seed after them and brought you out of in His sight with His mighty power out of Mitzrayim to drive out the nations from before you greater and mightier than you are, to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. They were right on the edge of going in. God was about to destroy the nations before them, drive them out like bees. You shall therefore keep, or you shall keep therefore his statutes and his commandments which I command you this day, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days upon the earth which the eternal your God has, gives you forever. Then Moses suffered three cities on this side Jordan toward sunrising, that the slayer might flee there, <coughs> which should kill his neighbor uh, accidentally, and hated him not in times past, and that fleeing into one of these cities he might live. God shows mercy by creating these cities of refuge where you could go if something happened and you might have a quick judgment against you and be stoned, but you could go there while a case was made that you did not do it intentionally. Namely, Bezer in the wilderness in the plains country of the Reubenites, and Ramoth and Gilead of the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan of the Manassites. God has given his church today as a place of refuge for his people that their guilt might be removed, that they might be made safe. You sit today in a city of refuge, running from what is out there under the protection of God's arm. And this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt. On the east side of Jordan, in the valley over against Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel smote after they were come forth out of Mitzrayim. And they possessed his land, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites, which were on this side, Jordan, the east, toward the sunrising. From Eroar, which is by the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Zion, which is Hermon. Interesting statement there. Hermon is not 80 miles from... Mount Zion, as it is in the Middle East. He says Mount Zion is Hermon. So when it says the dew of Hermon falls on Zion, I believe Cedar Mountain, right above it where the Virgin River comes right out of the rock, 
is Mount Hermon, and it is also part of the same formation as Zion. Hermon is Zion. It's not 80 miles away. And all the plain on this side, Jordan, eastward, even unto the sea of the plain, under the springs of Pisgah. Well, I'm over time, but I did manage to make it through several chapters. So, trying to make some progress here. We'll stop then and go into five next time I speak.